Hello everybody, you're very welcome to this UCL lunch hour lecture on pedagogy of hope for global social and environmental justice. My name is Professor Nicola Walsh, I'm Pro-Director for Education at IOE, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society, and Executive Director of the UCL Centre for Climate Change and Sustainability Education, and I will be chairing today's lecture. So it's my honour privilege and pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Professor Douglas Bourne. Professor Bourne is Director of the Development Education Research Centre at UCL, having come to IOE in 2006 from being Director of the Development Education Association. He's also currently Chair of the International Network of Academic Network of Global Education and Learning, ANGEL, and Chair of Global Learning London. Doug has made a significant impact on his field over his career and has an extensive record of influential publications, his most recent of which have included Theory and Practice of Development Education in 2015, Understanding Global Skills in 2018, and Education for Social Change in 2022. He's also edited the Bloomsbury Handbook on Global Education and Learning, and in 2023, research in global learning and pedagogy of hope for global social justice with Massimiliano Tarossi. Doug is currently working on two further edited volumes, one on the Earth Charter and another on papers from the 2023 Angel Conference. In addition to his directorship of the Development Education Research Centre, Doug has a number of wider strategic roles at UCL. For example, he's co-chair of the UCL Grand Challenge on cultural understanding, an active member of various initiatives in UCL and IOE on education for sustainable development, and is on the steering group of the UCL Centre for Climate Change and Sustainability Education. When he's not doing all of that, he also contributes to the master's programme on global learning in the IOE. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that we will have some time at the end of the lecture for questions, and these can be submitted at any point during Doug's talk by going to Slido and entering the event code hashtag hope. You should have been sent information about that, but as I say, if you go into Slido and enter hashtag hope, you should be able to find it. Please do, uh, and I encourage you strongly to put in questions. Doug's very much looking forward to hearing your thoughts, questions and comments at the end. So thank you very much. And without further ado, I'll um, now hand over to Doug for his talk. Thank you very much, Doug. Thank you. Thank you, Nicola. I'm very pleased to be able to present this lecture to you today on the theme of pedagogy of hope for global social and environmental justice. And my presentation would include discussions of some of the literature around how beyond people are concerned about the future of the planet and what they are doing to address this. I'd also put that in the context of what some of the international initi initiatives there have been in the past decade to address education sustainability and climate change. I also want to relate that discussion about what's been happening in education for sustainability to discussions around social and environmental justice and to argue particularly when you're addressing the concerns and interests of young people there's a connection between themes of social and environmental justice and sustainability in general and i also want to end by talking particularly about a sense of optimism and hope one of my more recent publications has been around editing a volume on pedagogy of hope and in that, I've been particularly influenced by the work of the Brazilian educationist, Paulo Freire. And, and what I'm going to pose is that in all the literature and discussions around sustainability and the future of the planet, 
we need to continue to have a sense of optimism and hope, particularly as a way of engaging young people in these issues and agendas. So I want to start by starting from some of the concerns that you pick up from some of the literature about young people's views about the future of the planet. And the, these are two sort of quotations that you can find amongst many about how young people are feeling about the current state of the world and their concerns about the future. And, but I want, it is around, I want to live in a world that doesn't, you know, people want to, young people want to live in a world where people care about the future of the planet and to engage with what's happening in the wider world. So there is also, I think, the second quotations, I think, particularly interesting and useful because they talk about it's different for us, for young people. The destruction, destruction of the planet is personal. And to me, that's quite important when we think about how, as educationalists, we engage people in concerns about climate change and sustainability, that there's a sense in which people are conceiving these issues are directly relevant to them now and their future. And I think that's one of the things I want to bring, hope will come out from some of the things I'm going to be um, talking about this afternoon. The second thing that you find in lots of discussions around this area is this sense about climate anxiety. And I should come back to some of the concerns I have about use of this term in a moment. But there is a sense in which in a lot of literature that many young people around the world are very worried about climate change and about the impact it's having on their lives. And this sort of sense of being doomed, a sense of doom ladenness is, exists amongst quite a number of young people in many countries that they feel that there's a fear for their own lives, fear for the lives of their children, and their sense of feeling ignored and, as one of these um, pieces of research says, feel betrayed. So to me, there's a sense of needing to understand why a lot of young people are feeling like this and why they feel concerned about the state of the planet. And also, for me as an educationalist, how are we engaging with those challenges and how do we respond to that? And I think that's something we need to recognise, but also there's danger, as I shall say in a moment, of putting that in some sort of box. And I think we need, I think, to suggest that we need to broaden that in a, in a broader context. So this Lancet survey on young people and climate change is also, I think, particularly interesting. Not only does it say that young people are worried and anxious about things, but also the sense about how they feel they are not feeling the sense of being engaged with these issues and how they feel that people are not listening to them. And that, I think, is also quite a key message and themes to think about when we're thinking about how young people engage in these issues and what they wish to do to in terms of taking their thinking forward. So if we recognise these things, we then need to put this in, obviously, the broader context. Now, I have been involved in discussions and activities around sustainability and education for sustainable development for more than 30 years. And, and I can remember 20 years ago, we can start to address these issues, but there weren't necessarily a lot of people listening to us in the way that people are now. I was involved in a UK government initiative on sustainable development education in the early 2000s, and, and it was a policy initiative to get climate change and sustainability within the school curriculum. We made a bit of progress, but there was a lot much opposition, but it wasn't necessarily seen as being a high priority. And I think if we now look where we are today in 2024, 
how much things are very different. There's a general consensus and a recognition in the UK and in many countries around the world that we are living at a time of a climate crisis. There's a recognition and understanding of increasing global temperatures. There's a recognition that progress to limit carbon usage is too slow. And there's a lack of commitment to reduce dependency on fossil fuel, fuels. There is, as we also know, an annual uh, climate change summit, um, the least, most recent one of COP28, in which there's a recognition amongst policymakers at an international level that we need to do much more to address these questions around climate change and sustainability. So the culture in which people are engaged in these issues is now very different to what it was 20 years ago. But I think within the context of what's happening within education in the UK and in many industrialized countries are probably way behind where young people, particularly young people, are wanting things to go in terms of what they learn about and how they engage with their learning. So alongside that, of course, there's been broader research on the value of learning and understanding about the environment, about nature. And there's a sense in which that's now recognized, I think, is increasingly relevant and important to young people's lives. And there's a lot of evidence now that actually the more young people have opportunity to be involved in learning about nature and the outdoors increases their well-being, increases their sense of who they are and their sense of place in the world. And we know that from the research that was taken on the back of and around the global pandemic, that the sense of the value of actually being in outdoors and being able to be in interaction with other people was seen to be important. I think it's also recognizing that within this issues about young people's engagement, there are obviously differences between age groups and also between children of different social and economic backgrounds. And I think those are the sorts of things we also need to be conscious of. And that's one of the things I also particularly wanted to highlight, that there's still a perception, I think, that young people's concerns for environment is coming mainly from young people of middle class background and more wealthier backgrounds and those that have access to the countryside. And I think there's a sense in which we need to think about how we connect some of these discussions around the environment to broader social questions. And that's where I think one of the things I see is quite important that I wanted to raise and it's a central theme of my presentation to you. And that is the interest in the environment needs to be linked much more, I would suggest, to concerns about social justice. Nancy Fraser, the academic, talks about the different ways you can talk about social justice, about the different ways you could engage. And I think, to me, when, when we talk about what social justice means, there is a sense in which we need to think about how it engages people to think about what it means to be engaged in securing social change in the world. And it is how those who with with a high, engage, you know, suffering the highest level of poverty and, and deprivation, who have been the most directly affected by climate change and environmental questions. So when we start to talk about social justice and addressing the inequalities that exist in the world, you have, I would suggest, the need to link them quite directly to questions about the environment, which is why I talk about environmental and social justice 
in the same term, because to me, they need to be seen as being directly linked. So part of that, I would suggest, is also the sense that young people themselves feel they've been ignored and when they're talking about these issues. And we know some of the responses that have happened, which I'll come on to in a moment. But I think there's a sense in which how it's not just about their fear to be ignored, but it's a question of how, for example, myself as an educationist and people work in the educational world or even in more wider societies. How do we ensure that young people have not only the space to be heard, but actually their voices are listened to? And alongside that, how do we ensure that those young people who are most excluded or securing a high level of deprivation, they are connected to and can feel to be involved in some of these conversations as well? So to me, the questions about connecting um, social and environmental justice to forms of democratic engagement is to me, I suppose, my second key point I'd like to raise with you. And that is when we start to think about these questions about environmental and social justice, we have to relate it to, okay, so to what extent do young people have a voice? To what extent are they to have space to be listened to? And also what are the avenues open to them to have forms of democratic engagement and involvement in society. Now there has been quite a lot of literature and discussion around this and this is this what's now called Generation Z and what is interesting is that there are examples of young people taking forms of direct action, the Extinction Rebellion movement is one that comes to mind in the UK as an example of that and also there have been the, the student strikes in the UK and in many European countries led by Greta Thunberg. But to me, there's a wider question here, which is around how do, you, how do we create the space for young people to have a voice, but a voice based on some level of understanding and knowledge about the area. And I think what technology has done, social, the social media and forms of new forms of newer technology, have created some forms of more democratic spaces where potentially young people can have a voice and be listened to. But my experience, particularly where I currently live in the east of England, is that there are voices about young people being concerned about issues, but that they almost talk on a parallel line to what adults and older people and more policymakers are engaged in these issues. There's not necessarily that level of interaction and engagement. And so to me, I think the ways in which young people have themselves in North America and in Europe set up movements themselves to start to in, engage in these issues has meant that there are new forms of social, not just social education, but ways in which people, what people can do with their knowledge and understanding and learning. And that to me has posed very interesting questions about how people engage and respond the questions around environmental and social justice. So there is a sense in which when we talk about this Generation Z's anxiety about how they are concerned about these issues and what they wish to do to engage with these issues, that means that when we start to think about democratic engagement, we have to think about it in a different way. So when we talk about how can young people have a voice, they have a voice already, for the use of social media is how do we connect that voice, 
voices to forms of democratic engagement. And there's quite a lot of recent research that shows that for young people, social media is now has overtaken traditional news channels as the main force of where they access information and also how they communicate with their peers. So to me, these think, things pose questions when we start to talk about securing social change or improving democratic engagement, particularly when we think about the environment, which is clearly the dominant social issues of our time. And so to me, there's a real big question mark here as how we connect all these things together to some form of effective um, forms of democratic engagement. So when we look at some of the broader research around this area about sense of engagement and social issues and environmental issues, there is a, a tendency, I think, and this reflects, I think, in some of this research, is to talk about young people, groupings of young people as activists. Now, I can, what I can partially understand that, there's equally a danger of putting young, uh, groupings of young people in a particular box, that there's a small grouping of young people that are concerned about these issues. Yet my feeling and of my experiences that you have to look at these things in a much broader context and that there'll be forms and levels of engagement from many young people and that would take varying forms. But also it needs to be recognised that some of that relates to the opportunities young people would have themselves to be engaged their access to social media, their access to new technology. And of course, that will vary from country to country around the world. But what is also, I think, relevant from some of the recent research and literature is that where young people have been particularly active engaged is come out from a sense of frustration and a sense of feeling they're not being listened to. And I think that presents a far bigger global challenge and a sense of where and how young people then channel their, their interests into um, forms of social and political engagement. And you need, I think, I would suggest, therefore, to relate the conversations about how young people engage in these issues, their sense of who they are, their sense of identity, and their sense of where, how they see their, their role in the world. I've done a lot of work around how young people respond to a sense of being active in a global society. And I've picked up a sense that for some young people, they feel disempowered, they feel a sense of lack of identity. And also the sense that the whole impact of global forces and the whole role of social media has been moving at such a rapid pace that many people feel dislocated and at a loss about how to engage in these issues. And that can happen from someone who might be in their early 20s now, compared with when they first started to become interested in these issues 10 years ago. The whole ways and forms in which people communicate and engage have changed quite dramatically. So what this research that was done by the BBC shows that a lot of young people develop their interests in some of these areas and they develop their sense of identities through the issues of social concern that they're involved with. So there's a sense in which there's a connection between a concern and a level of concern about environmental issues 
to the sense of how they perceive themselves in their role in the world. And that, I think, to me, is, is particularly important at this point in time. But also, I think we also need to recognise that when we talk about these issues in the, in the context of democratic societies, there's increasing concern that the traditional forms of voices in which where young people could be engaged in these issues, they feel excluded. And I don't think it's therefore surprising that a number of industrialised countries, there has been the rise of far right views and perspectives within, within groupings of young people because it connects the sense of sense of dislocation and alienation and being ignored. So to me, there's an important question here about the role, the educational role that links learning about environmental and social issues to young people's sense of identity, their sense of place and who they are in the world. So if we recognize these things, how then do we connect to those questions and issues that concern young people and their forms of democratic engagement. So this is sort of the classic sort of photo you see about young people engaging these issues with term using the term climate justice. And this and this has led to a whole number of self-generating movements of young people, mainly often students, um, where people talk about these questions and issues. And I think what is also interesting about some of these movements is they quite consciously connect learning about the environment and climate to a sense of social and environmental justice. So to me, there's that also I think is quite interesting that there is that connection within many young people and also how they organize themselves is quite consciously done, as this group says, in a non-hierarchical way. So, and I think there's also this question about how young people themselves see their response and how they connect this. Now, this is quite an interesting example where this young person was engaged in issues about addressing deportation of asylum seekers. But there's a sense in how she used Facebook and social media as a way of engaging people and to see there's a connection between young people's concerns about social environment and issues to the concerns of asylum seekers and the refugee crisis. So to me, they are all into, in the minds of many young people, they are interconnected and interlinked. So that to me is one of the key things I think we should be thinking about as we take these discussions further forward. Now, what frames all these discussions internationally at the moment is of course the sustainable development goals that were launched seven or, seven or eight years ago now which are a set of targets agreed by the United Nations, agreed by all countries at UN, that talks about how we can engage people of all ages and backgrounds to achieve questions of net zero, carbon reduction, net zero, to talk about how we can connect questions of gender equality to affordable and clean energy and climate action, to make connections between the needs of rural communities and inner cities. And also, I think what's important about these sustainable development goals is that they are their goal, global goals for every state around the world, whereas their predecessor, the Millennium Development Goals, were only aimed at countries, lower and middle income countries. So to me, there's a quite important distinction about how these goals are now being perceived 
they are being used in a whole numbers of sectors of education society um, within our own university, University College London, that has a big team on promoting the sustainable development goals and to looking at ways in which the university is engaging on the sustainable development goals. So they're providing quite an important framework. And within the goals, there's this target 4.7, which from my areas of work within education is, is particularly relevant and important. Whilst there's a danger of this target being seen as a list of, of everything, there's a sense within it, a promotion that sees an important role of education is to promote sustainable development, sustainable lifestyles, and connects themes of human rights, gender equality, peace, global citizenship, and cult understanding of cultural diversity. So to me, the sense in which target 4.7 is important is because it becomes a, a key way of making connections to the themes that I've outlined so far around social and environmental justice and also forms of democratic engagement. So to me, I would suggest that target 4.7 is an important framework for lots of our discussions and interests in this area. The second one I would suggest is the whole area around youth rights and United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, um, where young children and young people have the right to freedom of expression, to seek and receive and impart information and ideas of all kinds. Now, in a number of countries, this Convention on the Rights of the Child has been embedded within law and also part of lots of um, policy framework and also educational practices. And UNICEF, the, the international uh, organization that's part of the UNN system, is leading on this in many countries. And I would suggest that connecting youth rights to, to social and environmental justice that in themselves connects the sustainable development goals can become an important framework in how we take forward these conversations about how young people engage in sustainability issues. If we recognize these things, how then do we take these things forward? Now, what has also been shown for a number of pieces of research is that not only are young people concerned about these issues, they want to do something about them, and there's a sense of forms of practical activity and practical action. Now, this, of course, can take many forms. It can take forms might be happening in a school classroom, on the edge of outside of a classroom in terms of what might be happening in the school playground. It also could be taking place what might be happening within a youth organisation, but also could be and might be done informally by groupings of young people relates to some of the, sort of the social media networks that I've mentioned already. But I think one of the things I think is relevant in this piece of research, there was a sense of making for social action to be meaningful, that needs to make a connection to themselves and to be part of some form of ongoing activity. And I think to me, one of the big issues and challenges around discussions around environmental justice and addressing things about climate change is the need to see engagement with issues as not as a one-off, as something you did on a Tuesday afternoon or and you just ticked a box and then moved on to something else. There's a potential danger of that happening in a number of places around the world where you've got social um, civil society organisations engaging, but often, I would say, in a quite simplistic and superficial level. 
And that's why I've looked particularly at some of the examples in the UK and in other countries of how young people themselves have started to make connections about these issues. So the Glo Global Justice Now, which is a, a UK network, has a youth group, and they've talked about how they connect questions around environmental justice to questions of unemployment and a sense of empowerment, and, and also linking inequality to climate change and racism. So that to me is an example of some of the things I think should be talking about. But, and this is where I would bring in some of the work of some of the students that I've supervised, had a pleasure to supervise over the years, both at a master's level and a doctoral level, is that sometimes these forms of environmental and social engagement can be at a rather superficial level. Um, there's a sort of phrase but called a mile wide but an inch deep. And the use of this term collectivism, the sense in which it becomes a form of passive campaigning, that how do you ensure that young people feel some sense of ownership and engagement in these issues, and it's not reduced to just pressing a button on a Thursday afternoon that solves your conscience. And I think that to me is one of the areas of concern that I have about some of the discussions taking place at the moment amongst some of the civil society organisations. And, and as Song Goy, one of my former doctoral students said, we want to empower the activist, but with the knowledge to be knowledgeable. You need to educate members before they engage in forms of advocacy. And that to me, I think, is where education has such a central role to play. There are many, many ways in which young people can gather information about issues, but how do they turn that information into some depth of learning and understanding? And how do they develop the skills and value space to turn that into effective campaigning and action? And I want to show you this. This was one of my former master students. Um, and as part of her dissertation, she was looking at social action projects in young, with young people in Brazil and, the, and England. But what I thought was quite interesting in her river of transformative participation is this phrase, meaningful social action. And how does that lead to their participation that becomes related to their own sense of who they are, the sense of having um, fun and engagement and that, but also develops their skills and forms of further um, active activism at a later stage. And to me, whilst this is not some form of linear process, um, it does to me, I think, poses questions about how you have a process of active engagement that builds on what might be learned in the classroom to what they might want to do on social media or in the broader forms of public campaigning. So therefore, what I'm posing to you, and this is my sort of third main points, is that the central role of need for learning in understanding issues around climate change, around sustainability and addressing global poverty. These issues are not sim are complex. And in many cases, as we know about climate justice and climate change, they're not, we do not have simple and easy solutions. To understand and combat global poverty requires a depth of knowledge and understanding from a whole range of subjects and disciplines. But alongside that, as well as a process of developing a body of knowledge, is the need to develop relevant skills and a values base 
centered on the themes of social justice and human rights. So to me, I would therefore put the questions around the um, engagement related to the role and the need for learning. Now, a few years ago, I, I did this book on understanding global skills. And one of the things I was trying to do in that book was to see how, how you develop the skills that young people and people of all ages need to engage in society. It needed to engage questions around critical thinking, process of self-reflection, but also locate that learning and the development of those skills in a particular social context. All right, the context in which we're living is a very global one, but it's the relationship of people's own communities to those global things. And to me, I find use of terms like this helpful. You could be talking now about sustainable skills, possibly in the same way. And I think this provides a way of seeing a connection between how you learn about these issues to actually what you might do to secure change. And then I would therefore add to that, there's questions around values-based, and I talk in my book on uh, pedagogy of hope around values-based of global social justice. And I use these, these three themes from Ayers, Quinn and Stovall to talk about equity, the principles of fairness and equal access, forms of social activism, and we need that sense of social literacy. So to me, those things, I think, central to what we want to take forward. So and there are many examples of this, this is, of, of organisations doing this, I think, effectively. UNICEF have this youth advocacy toolkit, which uses this phrase as themes, explore, think, act and evaluate. The student UK Student Climate Network also has, I think, some very interesting ways with engaging these issues. And I think what's interesting, why it could be seen as very activist orientated, is also based on some depth of knowledge and understanding. So to me, those things are particularly important in that context. So what I want to do now is to show you a short video that was shown at COP28 that I think brings some of these questions and things together. Planet Earth is perfect for life. It is the perfect distance from the sun and so the perfect temperature. It has all the ingredients for life. Everything is perfectly balanced to maintain a thriving planet. But climate change is tipping that balance. There are more extreme conditions, more unpredictability. There are problems that feel overwhelming. Are you feeling powerless? Are you feeling like nothing can be done? Well, take a trip down the Red River. Follow me. The Red River flows through Vietnam. There's a project running here that inspires young people to listen to stories of their towns and villages. The young people listen and record. They collect stories of fishing and traveling on boats, of storms, flash floods and landslides, of families, of things changing and things staying the same. Hundreds of stories that flow like the river around them. There were stories of extremes, too little water in the dry season and too much when it rained. There was a story of how the cardamom that families had relied on to sell was no longer growing in the forest due to more extreme weather. There was a story about a mother who, when her husband died, had her land taken away from her. 
There was the story of a terrible flood that washed away houses, food, and livelihoods. Now, the strange thing about listening to stories is that a story is like a seed. When it is told to you, it's planted, but that is not the end of its life. The stories grew inside the young people. They made them ask questions. They made them talk. They made them explore and wonder. And the more they heard, the more they began to see that there was hope where before they could see none. Upstream, the people in the flood had not given in. They had joined hands and worked together, getting things up high and taking care of each other. Villagers had started to grow bamboo to stop the banks of the river eroding. They grew tea to protect them from flooding, and create a new income. The young people went to the authorities and told them the story about the single mother whose husband had died. And she was given more assistance. The young people didn't want these stories of disaster and hope to be ignored. They didn't want them to get washed away in the floods or broken apart by the wind. They wanted to turn the stories into something. A young woman listened to the stories and turned them into a comic strip about a dragonfly who predicted the rain by flying low. Not everyone heeded the dragonfly's warning, but those who lost their crops. Were helped by others who had collected their harvest early. A young man took out his phone and started to make a film about the mangrove forest. Trees had been dying, as rising sea levels meant an increase in salt water further up the river. He filmed the community-based mangrove protection groups and the action the government was taking. The young people shared the stories they had collected. With an indigenous water puppetry troupe, who had been part of a long tradition of telling stories about life along the river, the water puppetry troupe then began to wonder if they could use their performances in a different way. The flipbooks, drawings, podcasts, films, puppet shows, and presentations that the young people made did something to the stories. They made the stories stronger. These weren't films. And books and poems made by people far away, from places no one had ever been to, they were stories made here, right at home. And because of that, the young people saw that they could change their endings. They could act. The young people kept going, working independently, and keeping the project alive. The stories had been brought to life. Listening, recording. Turning stories into something, sharing, and taking action had become a kind of process. The young people found they could adapt to how the climate was changing. They found a way to talk about it, to not be frightened into inaction, to communicate, connect, adapt, hold hands, and work together. The project had worked. It had made a change, and it continues. Goodbye and good luck.
Okay, so as you see, there are a number of themes in that presentation. And I suppose the central one of those themes was this question of hope. And that's possibly the last theme I want to address in my talk to you today. And as that, as, as that presentation shows by forms of collective action and engaging people in a sense of positive futures, there's a way of empowering and using young people to seek a better world for themselves in Vietnam. And so to me, when we start to think about environmental justice, we start to think about climate change, and we need to rethinking young people's futures. We need to think not just in a simplistic way, but in what we need, as suggested here by Kelly, an exercise in hope. We need to form ways in which people can feel that their contribution can make a difference. To be a good educationalist, you have to be an optimist. You have to believe in hope. And that's why I, in terms of taking forward these issues, and to address the questions about at the raise the beginning about so-called anxiety, about a sense of powerlessness, you do that by promoting what I'm calling a pedagogy of hope that's based on ideas from the Brazilian educationist Paulo Freire. That's about locating young people's and people's learning experiences in the real world that moves beyond superficial and quick fix solutions and recognizes that we need to understand if people have a sense of hopelessness and that we need to move in beyond emotional responses to these issues. And we need to recognize and promote that change is possible and that actually we need to encourage and develop with young people and people of all ages the skills to engage in these issues to make a more just and sustainable future. So to me, if we see a connection between education and social change, then hope has to underpin our work. We have a responsibility, if we're educators, to encouraging a positive future. Possibly never has this been more important than it is today. And that, to me, presents major challenges to all of us who, act, who act, are active in the educational world. And how do we engage in these issues to promote that sense of optimism and hope? So in conclusion, we need to understand young people's concerns and anxieties, but I would suggest it's much more about a sense of anger than it is about anxiety. That many young people in the world are already engaged in these issues, but actually what we need to do is not only support them, but give them the space to deepen their learning and to make connections between the learning about these issues to their own everyday experiences. And I would therefore argue that promoting a sense of a pedagogy of hope can provide a framework for educators to address these issues. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, um, Doug. Really, really fascinating presentation. And I loved your interpretation of pedagogy of hope for creating a more just and sustainable future. But also you gave us so much to think about, both in terms of how children and young people are engaging with and responding to concerns around global social and environmental justice, but also the ways that we as a society could and should be supporting, encouraging this. Also really found it interesting to hear about the work of your international students. So drawing on your doctoral and master's students, I loved the quote, we want to empower the activists with the knowledge to be knowledgeable as well. As a kind of educationalist, that gave me a lot to think about. So thank you. Um, We've got lots of questions, which is fantastic. Um, just to say that Slido is still open. So if 
people still want to go in and either vote for some of which question they want me to ask or contribute a new question, then please do. It's go to Slido. You haven't got the link and put in a search for hashtag hope. Um, I will try and manage these and go by um, how popular they are in terms of how much people want me to ask them. But as I say, there are a lot. Um, so I'm going to start off with the most popular one, Doug. And it was it's kind of um, from an anonymous um, participant. So how would you address to a class? So presumably in a kind of formal education setting that young people's activism, particularly Greta Thunberg, who you referred to, is so often criticised or even ridiculed by the older generation or even the media. So how would you kind of address that with young people? Um, um, it can address it in a number of different ways. One is I would almost start by asking young people, why do you think she was protesting? Why do you think she was engaged in these issues? And to what extent do they have a sense of resonating with what she's what she's protesting about and almost take it from there to start from the process of getting them to understand and consider, do they connect with what um, she's been doing or what others like her have been doing? You can then have conversations about what's the most appropriate form of social action. But to me, the most important thing is, does, does their sense of concern and their interest in wanting to do something resonate with them? To what extent does it? Do they feel they have sufficiently knowledgeable to engage the, those issues? Or do they feel they need to know more? And that to me is almost like a, a starting point. There's obviously the second area, which is forms of sort of active citizenship and what's the most effective ways of engaging these issues. But to me, that's almost a, a, a second question. To me, I would be much more interested in saying, well, what do you think? How do, do you, are you equally concerned about these issues? If not, why not? And why do you think she is? You know, that would be brilliant. No, yeah, no, thank you. Really interesting question. And I suppose there's, there's a few linking to that. Um, um, one, which is the next popular one, is around formal and non-formal school curriculum, with a focus on England in particular. Um, and the question is where you feel there are good opportunities for developing and implementing such kind of pedagogies of hope that you've described. I I think they couldn't. You, to me, the whole approach that I'm suggesting could be seen to be relevant across all curriculum subject areas. And there's a sense in which they might be seen to be more immediate and relevant than in others. But I think you almost, it, to me, it's, it's the way, it's the, it's the process that you go through from taking their concerns. So you can have, a, in a, for example, an English language lesson or any language lesson, you could start by asking them to explore and uh, experience their own perceptions and views and then turn that into something. What do you do with that? And of course, there is increasing young people are very savvy at, and on use of social media and technology. So one of the things I've found very interesting and one thing that have really inspired me is the ways in which young people are using forms of social media technology, how they're using their phones in a way of communicating their messages to others. So to me, it's much about how you can communicate those things and how you connect to the skills they might need to develop in their subjects. One of the things I do have a concern about is the danger of actually seeing that these areas are relevant to two or three curriculum subject areas, whether it's the natural sciences or geography and so on. And I think there's still a challenge, as I know from the work that your centre has been doing, Nicola, about how you can make connections to a whole range of curriculum subjects, whether it's in this country or elsewhere in the world. 
And I still think we've got a, quite a long way to go there on that. And, and I think we need those sorts of stories. And one of the reasons I showed that video was that there was a conscious way of looking at things that coming in from different subject areas and different ways of addressing these issues. And I think that's where we need to learn much more about how we do that. Do you mean you go back by starting with the young people themselves on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks, Doug. Um, couldn't agree more. The, there's um, sort of a question, again, sort of leading on from that uh, in terms of thinking about what you might be teaching um, children, young people. Um, from Morgan asking us about the development of the values base, which you talked about, and how would you um, anticipate you develop this values base and what might the ethical issues be surrounding this sort of um, approach? Yeah, and I, I think that's, that's quite a challenging one because in many cases, some of the values base that might underpin some things I've been talking about may not necessarily be in stream of what some of the dominant political thinking in many industrialized countries. And I think the sense in which you are wanting also to promote a value space that's not seen as a very um, top-down or hierarchical way, that um, there's a lot of discussion with education at the moment about whose values are you talking about. And I, and I think one of the challenges for work in this area is how do we bring in the discussions around values and how do you ensure that they are central to some of the discussions that we're talking about? And, I, and I've been quite interested in this. It's very interesting international initiative that's a co-initiative from Buddhist tradition that talks about value creating education. And I think there's a lot to be learned from that about how you bring in some of those more social justice questions or questions about rights into forms of learning but do so in a way that's not about saying, this is the way to do it, as though it's a very simplistic and universalist way. And I think that's still a challenge. And, I, um, and, and it's got to go back to ensuring that within a classroom or any education experience, that people have a space to present what their own values are and, how to, and also to critique them and critique the views of others. But that, of course, requires quite a well-developed sense of understanding these questions from the teachers and educationists and some of these things are not easy no absolutely and require kind of support for teachers as you say but sort of to be able to do that and have those conversations now there's a sort of very much linked from that there's a couple of questions which perhaps if i ask you them both at the same time because they link together so there's one which says how far should we focus on awareness and how much should we emphasize on proactivity to young people, which I guess links into what you've just said around sort of transmission of particular values. And then another about how do we rekindle hope in pessimistic youngsters, but then it says, how do we coerce them, coerce them into environmental positivity, which again sort of links together. So how much should we just be uh, making young people aware? How much should we be forcing them to be proactive, encouraging them, them coercing them into, into being sort of more pro-environmental behaviour? Yes, I, I think I think educationists have a major responsibility here because I I've seen and heard of some conversations where some civil society organisations have quite consciously promoted a very doom-laden scenario to young people. And I think that's particularly dangerous um, because if something is going to disempower them, it's, it's that, really. So to me, that sense of uh, awareness um, has got to be rooted in making connections to their own everyday experiences, their own forms of learning. And 
And there is also, I think, a danger that people make assumptions that from this degree of awareness that's going to suddenly lead to young people or people all ages suddenly taking action. And it's not and shouldn't be. So there's a sense in which where you, the role that deepening that understanding and learning takes place and how that comes linked to forms of social engagement. And one of the things I thought was really important about the, the video like we just saw was that sense of collective activity and collective action. Because to me, when you start moving from awareness to activity and action, that has to be seen in a much more in a collective way. And I think that's particularly important. And how that relates to addressing this sense of hopelessness and hope, that comes into engaging people in actually maybe small scale steps. And that you could do any subject and then how you get how get people reflect and see they've learned engage something and that's had an impact but it means both giving people on people the space but also doing so in a way that is framed within particular goals and activities sometimes things can be left too loose and too free and people go off in different directions because these issues are complex and are not easy to suddenly engage with they require space to deepen that level of knowledge and understanding and how they can then move from that to what they want, want to do. But I think I, I always go on the side of actually to demonstrating or giving stories of what people have done in communities around the world to show that change is possible. And always when I've given talks on this area, I always try if possible to find what's the latest little video clip that demonstrates that, that of a story. And to me, that's where you empower young people, particularly if they can see these ways in which young people have engaged, then that themselves sees, well, we can do similar things ourselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you. Now, I might fit just a couple more in. Um, there's a question here, um, which was asked really early on in, in your presentation, which is around the kind of line between or the difference between sort of moral justice and then justice based on interests and efficiency. So where do you think the line between those two things are and how does this influence the productivity of measures is, is the question. Um, does that, is that make sense? Yes, sort of. I think, I think it's quite a difficult one. It um, is very difficult, yes. <laughs> and I, I think there is, um, there, there is a sense of when you start to talk about some of these questions and issues, there is almost like a moral argument. But there's a danger that, that can then just end up there and, and not move from that to then making connections to what does this mean to people's everyday lives, to economies and to securing a better world. And that's where you need to start making connections between, all right, there may be this emotional attachment to certain things, but you've got to understand how economies respond and how then you take that forward. And that, that requires then a moving possibly from one particular box in an area and a subject area to how to connect to, to other subjects and other areas of learning. And that, I accept that that's not an easy one. And I, one of the things I've grappled with quite a lot is how do I interpret justice through the things I've been writing about? And that, and you read, you know, once you read different things every day and you give very get very different answers. But I, what I'm interested in is actually the sense in which how young people particularly feel a sense of um, concern and want to make uh, things better. And I, I did some research around 
the impact of fair trade within schools in young in UK. And there was a, a constant theme that came from the young people. Why those thought um, the subject was important was because they developed a sense of fairness, a sense of fairness, which often emerges quite a lot within primary schools in many countries and how you then build on that to do to deepen that and develop that levels of understanding that makes connections to big environmental and environmental questions, economic questions. Brilliant, thank you. I think that was a really helpful answer um, to that question. Um, so I think I'm gonna finish with one more question, um, which uh, is from Ruth. And, and Ruth asks, I feel the weight for educators of how they stay hopeful themselves. So what would you advise? I think that's a good question as well. Yeah, I know it is not always not easy um, for us as educators, and I, that's where I think I, when I felt that occasionally, I, I found that by actually having dialogue and discussions with young people, and to give presentations like this, and to talk to young people, or to talk to people who are teachers, and to have that dialogue and that interaction, and don't be afraid to say, okay, well, how have you responded to these questions and issues? Um, it's all too easy for us to get drawn into rather negative response because we can't see any progress. But I've found that, you know, I've given what three or four talks around concept of hope in the last three or four months to different groupings of teachers and students in different universities. And what's been common throughout all of them is they are very take away the sense that to be a good educationalist, you have to be an optimistic one but that needs to be grounded in the level of understanding. You need to have the stories that can help you to engage these issues. And you need to have a belief that you and the people working with can make a difference. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. And I think I'm going to leave it there as we're coming very quickly uh, upon two o'clock. And I think that's very much shows us how interesting that's been because time has just flown. So it's, um, Finally, it falls on me to thank you, Doug, so much for giving us so much to think about and actually for leaving us with, certainly myself, a, a sense of hope that we can achieve that. So thank you so much, um, Doug. And thank you very much to um, you, the audience, for um, listening in on the presentation. You're, it's very much appreciated. Um, just to say the next lunch hour lecture will take place on the 25th of January. And the title is The Impact of England's Cal Calorie Labelling Policy on Individuals with Eating Disorders, Past, Present and Future. So thank you so much to everyone for being here. It's very much appreciated. Enjoy the rest of your day.